Today we're going to talk about some areas, genres, and subgenres that I include in early music that will help us expand the scope and definition of what early music is. We'll have an interview with composer Stuart Wheeler, and our composer profile is on William Billings. This is Early Music Monday. So if we're going to expand the scope of early music, we should probably first really clearly define what it is. I realize that it is now episode 18, and I have still not given the audience a very clear definition of what I think is early music, which is lame and bad marketing. But the definition as told by earlymusic.com, like earlymusic.com, says that early music is commonly defined as European classical music from the Middle Ages, Renaissance, and Baroque. So that's basically spanning 800, 900, maybe earlier, all the way through when Bach died in 1750, even though musical characteristics of the classical time period were clearly established before Bach died. But because of other composers like Mendelssohn, who came later, with the kind of resurgence of Bach's music, it kind of started, Mendelssohn really started this idea of early music as its own genre as a whole. And that's the definition that, again, when most musicians think early music, they're really thinking Bach and backwards in time. But even this website talks about how many early music historians have expanded that definition to include Mozart and some of Bach's children and in the beginnings of the classical era. Well, I mean, even all the way through, they even put Haydn on this list who really was transitioning us into the Romantic era. So I think that's really interesting because then early music can basically be whatever you want it to be. I mean, really, why couldn't... I mean... I don't want to give too much away from the Andrew special, but we just recorded that episode. and Man, there are some really cool nuggets. But we talk about this concept of modal figures reoccurring throughout all musical time periods. And so you think about the building blocks of sound, the building blocks of music, like consonants and dissonance. That's it. Any sort of organized meter and then really throughout time different time periods and different genres are just the reconfiguring of those building blocks and luckily the possibilities of how we configure those building blocks are infinite so i think expanding the scope and definition of early music not only will help us understand 
Western European early music better, but that all will help us gain an appreciation for early music and help us understand the building blocks of sound that contemporary music is built on. So there are a couple of other genres that first that spring to mind first when I say expanding the scope of early music. One is early American folk music and shape note singing, the music of the frontier. Because if you look at it, there are a lot of similarities. And our interview with Stuart Wheeler, you're going to hear him talk about some of those similarities. Things that we've talked about on the show before, about melodic line, about the nature of dissonance and consonance, the use of open sonorities. Um, it's really incredible. So I, I would put shape note singing, early American choral music, you know, in the 18th century, even though Mozart was going on over in Europe and his influence, you have almost this this sort of... Mm, kind of classically influenced or baroque influenced harmonic version of homophonic renaissance music that's kind of what it sounds like to me it's really interesting so but you could put in there you know any folk songs from any country african folk tunes could be considered early music asian folk tunes you think about the pentatonic scale how long has the pentatonic scale been around We'll have an episode on that later. African-American spirituals. All Again, the list could go on and on of how we expand the scope. In this episode today, we're going to be focusing on shape note singing, William Billings, and the music of early America. And Stuart has a lot of really great things to say about that, so I'm going to let him do the talking. Stuart did his undergrad at BYU in composition and is now pursuing a master's at Wesleyan University in composition as well. So here is Stuart Wheeler. The composition world is just so interesting to me because (laughs) there's the cool thing, in my opinion, the cool thing about contemporary composition is that it, it seems like there's, you know, thousands of tools and influences that you can draw upon and really there's a market for, okay, what is your individual compositional voice and where are you going to run with it? And, and you can really kind of explore, not, not that you couldn't, I guess, in previous eras, but it just seems like the opportunities to do that are so much easier and there's just so much more to explore. And the world is a lot smaller because of technology and, and things like that. Um, Where do you see, like, what are, perspective yeah, yeah, yeah. Of composition through right now like what are, what are some things you've been thinking about use as you compose uh yeah um well uh stuff i've been thinking about recently actually is sort of like um uh i've been kind of interested in stuff that that um huh well uh yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm trying to think about uh, all the stuff in that question you were just asking. Um, no, there's, there's heavy. <laughs> uh, I, oh, okay, I want to respond to, to it to an earlier part of what you were saying actually first, uh, which, which is that um, I do think that like for composers today, uh, there is a, 
there there is a sort of unique situation where um, uh, like you're saying the world has sort of gotten smaller um, but also at the same time um, uh, through like record recording technology and not just recording technology but record like access to recordings uh, in the last couple of decades through um, the internet uh, we just have like um, we just have access to so much stuff uh, that nobody ha- ever had access to uh, on that scale on that scale, you know, and, and we, we, uh, I don't know, we take this for granted a little bit. I think I do certainly, I, I, I forget about how unique that situation is, but like to somebody composing in the seventies, you know, I mean, I've just, there's so much stuff that I've been able to hear and I'm like 30, you know, uh, right. and like, I've probably heard more music than yeah. uh, Mozart ever did in his life. I don't know, you know, like probably. Yeah. And, and, and a wider range of it. And, and that, that just creates a specific situation for people, right. you know? Uh, and uh, I do think that there is sort of like this sense of like, um, there is this sense of everything just being like the world being smaller, but also the world being so huge and yeah. you just being this one little voice in a sea of voices. Right. And, and so, and, and actually I think it's, it's sort of like an interesting, to me, it's sort of an interesting response to just accept that and like let go of this idea the the sort of um, I don't know I mean the Beethoven the it, right it's, it's sort of associated with Beethoven the sort of like romantic uh, uh, artist um, who has a unique voice that has to be heard that that yeah. is you know that is sent out through um, through my composing right I, I speak right. through my music uh, this like unique voice that I have that no one else has and yeah. that may be true and certainly I think it's like a useful narrative in some ways but I, I also think that it's sort of like, um, I don't know, I'm kind of interested in stuff that's like, that's just letting go of that idea and just being like, uh, like, uh, um, like music is just about like uh, activity uh, and less about like, you know, sort of like mythologized composer figures. Like we're just doing things uh, and we're making things and it's pattern based or, or it's not, or, you know, um, which which ties into early music to me, you know, right? Like I, I think that, uh, um, I mean, I've always been really fascinated with uh, particularly um, uh, late medieval era music, but but also stuff earlier than that. But you know, I'm, I mean, I'm a huge Michaud uh, fan. I I love Peritan. I love Hildegard. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and you know, this stuff to me is not about like the composer's voice. Uh, right you know i I think i think sometimes in in the way we talk about that stuff in history now we will sometimes try to put it into that same kind of narrative uh of like i don't know michaud inventing the bass voice or whatever like uh maybe he did uh but but it's just anyway uh i don't know yeah us trying to trying to come up with a way to organize it so we can keep it all straight right because when you when you try to look at it when you try to put yourself behind them and look forward with them, then you start to see it the same way you, we would look at something new right now. We're just organizing sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're trying to organize sound in a way that you think is, has value, whether that's intellectual, yeah, yeah. emotional, um, artistic, whatever. Like for whatever reason, each artist has value and you do it for your little sphere of influence and, and you just continue to find ways to organize it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think a lot these days about what I'm doing as a composer being sort of like uh, knitting a scarf or something, yeah. you know? Right. Uh, um, yeah. It's, it's, it's activity and I'm following, I'm doing things that are interesting to me. Uh, and, and a lot of the time just kind of following impulses and, and uh, you know, that's uh that's kind of all any of us are doing any of the time yeah, it seems absolutely. to me absolutely so I, I think yeah we should just like uh just embrace that and stop uh trying, trying to be beethoven right <laughs> or whatever you know like right and i mean even trying to change music right and and i think even even me trying to do this podcast it's just because i'm just like oh my goodness when i when, when i when i sat and heard Dufay for the first time, I was like, why does no one do this? <laughs> me with this right now, right? And, and, and realizing that so much of the music that I had performed and been exposed to was, was built upon this and what have I been missing and, and trying to look back versus trying so hard to be the new best new thing yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Try, trying to, trying to kind of take it all before me and say, well, why even is now, you know, and those sorts of ideas. And it's, it's been really interesting on how my perspective of new music has changed uh -huh. and those types of things. How do you feel like, I guess, oh man, this might be another loaded question, but in your composing, what, what do you feel like are some specific things that you draw from, from maybe not early music, I just say historical music, in any time period what are some things that you that are interesting to you right now yeah uh well um okay well, well uh on a much smaller historical scale uh, uh i've been really interested recently in um a lot of like sound poetry from like the the six like 50s 60s 70s um a lot, like um kind of avant-garde poets who were doing uh stuff they were writing poetry that was meant to be performed and was meant explicitly to be heard uh yeah. and a lot of times was like playing with language and nonsense and like breaking language apart and recombining things and and, and yeah. like um and, and john cage was actually a big figure in this uh we we don't really usually talk about this when we're talking about him in music history but uh especially in the 70s well from the 70s on 70s 80s um uh, he uh, he wrote a lot of stuff that is like um, uh, that is uh, treated as somewhat canonical in like the world of experimental poetry. Um, yeah. So like if you talk to somebody who's like doing a, a doctoral program in experimental poetry, they definitely know about John Cage, uh, yeah. but they might not really know about his music. Right. You know. Right. Uh, anyway, uh, it's kind of a funny thing, but. Um, I've been really interested in this stuff lately and uh, um, a lot of my composing has been about like language and, and kind of stuff that's in between poetry and music. And, and I'm, I'm also definitely interested in sort of like the cross section of that as like song, yeah. you know, uh, which of course has ties to different kinds of histories as well. Uh, what's that? Oh, tons of like, you could, I'm sure you could talk about German, yeah. German leader, from the romantic time and you know then you talk about baroque aria and monteverdi you could go 
Yeah, and then mm-hmm. all the way back and loot song. And... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you get back to Michaud and you get back to uh, Hildegard, and you know, like these same people who were who were doing this stuff as part of this basically a single practice. You know, is my understanding of it. Uh, um, or, or if not a single practice, that these things were really closely tied together. Their their work in language and their work in music. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, and and you also get into you know like like the the troubadour tradition and, and stuff like this where where uh, or, or Homer where um, uh, and the rhapsodes of of this like poetry that was that was the medium for it was to be sung and performed in that way for people so. Um, yeah, I'm kind of like, that's kind of stuff that I'm, that, that whole kind of weird through line through different kinds of music histories is, is something that I'm interested in right now. And kind of like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. That, that sort of strange connection between like music and language, uh, and, um, just well, playing I, with that. And I remember I could probably, I can see probably maybe the beginnings of that in the piece you wrote with, for the Barlow Endowment for BYU Singers. Today, oh, yeah, where, yeah, yeah, those, yeah vowel sounds yeah dr crane dug it like it it was it was oh cool that's and it was i mean we we had fun with it it was different than anything we had sung but yeah we we care with it and we're like hey like what exact vowel are we saying and it it was really cool to think about language deconstructed as just sounds yeah especially coming from a vocalist when it's like I, as a choral conductor, I have to break down my singer's speech all the time. I hate doing songs yeah. in English. They have such bad habits. It's like, no, no, yeah. like, these are sounds that have meaning. So we have to break it down to be, <laughs> so it can be words again. And so I think that idea is really cool that, that play on what colors of vowel tell what, you know, how do you use the color of the language with the music and I think that's super cool. Yeah. Yeah, just that like at a uh, at a fundamental level uh we can use language in more ways than uh just making semantic sense, right? Yeah. Like yeah. and we yeah. know this obviously through any even the most sort of like traditional conservative poetry that you would find like the point right. is not the main point is not making, you know, the most semantic sense in the most concise amount of words, right? Like the point right. is something else clearly. Yeah. Uh, whether that's the kind of like uh uh, a play with the sounds of language or 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 whatever um yeah yeah, yeah. that's really cool dang i dig that yeah you have to do you have a website or something you have to I and that's one of the i i i i've never i've yeah I, I need to make myself a website i'm always telling myself i need to make myself a website like it's just like yeah. a thing that composers are supposed to have and uh <laughs> right right yeah one of these days i'm gonna get that figured out yeah, but I do have some stuff. I'll send you some stuff uh, yeah. that I've been working. Some I'd love to hear it. I'd love to hear it. I think that's cool. Yeah, that's that's really cool. So to shift gears in a really not smooth way at all. <laughs> to, <laughs> I think that, well, maybe not. Maybe it is smooth, but I think that the definition <laughs> of early music can be broadened a lot. Something that I talk with my friend, uh, his name's Andrew Maxfield. Do you know Andrew Maxfield? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. So something that him and I have talked about before is that the reason why we end up going back to early music or or even just to the previous generation sometimes as, as artists is because there's something that's primal about it. And so really in every culture, you, you could look at every culture around the world and they still hold some of their early music traditions to be, you know, really sacred to them. 
and because it's primal. So for me, broadening that definition of early music is really important because there's so much that goes into the music of today. So when we talk about shape note singing, like you are the first guy that I thought of when I was like, shape notes. I read something, it was like, shape note singing. It was like, oh my gosh, Stuart did a project on shape note singing. And I still remember it because I had never heard of it until Dr. Crane had us do an old, you know, kind of revivalist hymn, oh, cool. shape note style, the semester before we did your piece. Oh, really? Yeah. And so it was oh, cool. It, cool. So I didn't realize that. First introduction to it. And I was like, what in, is this? Yeah. So, so for someone who's new to it, just talk us uh -huh. through kind of shape note singing and kind of how you, maybe you gained a, a, a passion or a, or a love of it or appreciation for it. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, my, uh, well, okay. Yeah. So um, my first encounter with it um, was when I was in choir in high school. Uh, my choir director um, had us sing, we sang an arrangement of a shape note tune. Um, uh, it's the tune that um, I think is usually called Beach Spring. Like if you look in the, if you look in the Sacred Harp book, uh, you'll find a tune called Beach Spring. And that's the tune that we sang an arrangement of in my high school choir. Uh, but it was with different words than the ones that are in that book. Um, but yeah. Uh, um, I assume he probably told us the name at that time, but I didn't remember. It didn't stick in my memory. I just remembered that he told us that uh, that this style of singing was like done uh, really forward in the face, really nasally and bright. Uh, um, uh, I, for some reason, in my memory, I I I remember him telling us that this musical tradition was from the Appalachian region which either that's a false memory or he had his information not quite right because it's, it's kind of, it does overlap with Appalachia a bit, but it's history, it's geographical history is actually sort of complicated, but, but Appalachia is not really one of the places where it's mainly from. Anyway, that's, that's kind of a tangent, but anyway, these are just the things that I remember about my initial uh, contact with it. Almost said that it came from there. So I also, I guess, have been. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I think part of that is just the fact that uh, I feel like in the United States, when we talk about folk music, what we are usually thinking about is the Appalachian region, sure. yeah, and and mostly kind of like uh, um, like white uh, settlements in the Appalachian region, the kind of music that they played. Um, sure. Uh, so so I think there's sort of like a tendency to just sort of like mythologize everything right. in that region if we don't know better. Copeland um, did, I'm sure that that yeah yeah, yeah right right that, of, you know our our lens through it yeah 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 definitely. Um, uh, anyway, yeah. So he had us sing it like in that style, and, yeah. and I that you know had a huge left a huge impression on me because we did yeah. not usually sing stuff in that style in, in right. high school choir. Um, and. Uh, yeah, then, um, yeah, when I was, when I was studying composition at BYU, I remember that um, uh, Christian Aspland, uh, who's on the composition faculty there, he, um, he brought it up a few different times uh, in, in different classes. And so that was what started to get me to pay a little more attention to it. And I recognized uh, this tradition of music as having to do with that song that I had sung in high school. And yeah, um, 
Yeah, and then I had um, I had a friend out in LA who's a uh, who's a great singer um, who I've done a lot of singing with, um, who is the person who like really introduced me to it uh, because she had uh, the shape notebook and, uh, just like pulled it out and started teaching me how to read the notes, uh, and to sing. Uh, and so we started singing that stuff together. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was basically like that, that was how I got acquainted with it. Basically it was just through different like chance occurrences. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's obviously left an impression on me. You're, you're like, uh, at BYU, it was like, of all the students, it's like, you were the expert, you know, you are the, <laughs> you know, because, you know, everyone's got their thing that they kind of fall, these rabbit holes, they go down and yeah. you were the only one <laughs> going down that, that kind of avenue. So for someone yeah. new to it, kind of, yeah. talk, it's probably hard without visuals, I guess, but as best you can and kind of make, yeah, yeah, yeah. how would you go about reading that music and how's that tradition um, kind of played out? Yeah, so uh, maybe maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll give a brief sort of like history of, of the yeah. music and that will bring in like the sort of like uh, uh, specifics of the notation and style yeah, and stuff great. like that as we go. Um, yeah, so uh, the, the history of it is actually kind of, kind of um, complicated because uh, um, we just don't have, uh, there's a few different factors that limit our knowledge of, of music's actual origins, which actually seems to be the case with most music. Uh, you know, like, um, people usually don't start writing about it until a while later. And so then, so I was anyway, sure. this is definitely the case with this music. So uh, the, first, the first scholarship that was ever really done on it was in like the 1930s. And by that time, it's, it was already basically a historical style. Yeah. Um, um, okay. So, uh, so yeah, basically, um, uh, it's a singing tradition that originated probably sometime around the late 1700s uh, and really flourished, particularly in the South um, in, in the 1800s, especially prior to the Civil War. Um, after the Civil War, um, a lot of the singing starts to get replaced with more kind of like what we would think of as like gospel style um, church singing. And it's a, and, and I should say it's, it's a tradition that mostly it's a sacred tradition. So it was mostly sung in the churches. Um, gotcha. uh, and and uh, for a while, the, the, the main belief was that this music uh, originated in New England uh, in the late 1700s. Um, basically, there were these... Um, uh, these singing school teachers uh, who would um, uh, who basically in the late 1700s they started doing this this like economic model this business model where they would where they would uh, instead of doing just private music lessons for the wealthy um, they started doing these group lessons by subscription and so everybody would pay like a little bit of money and they would come to these group classes and they would learn how to read notes and sing. Hmm. Um, and, and, and so it was, it was kind of a significant thing going on because it was like music education for people who normally uh, that wasn't uh, uh, afforded to them. Yeah. Um, so part of that situation also is that people didn't really have a lot of music education going into it. Uh, they didn't know how to read notes uh, and you couldn't give people a lot of one-on-one -on -one attention. So there was a lot of interest in like figuring out how to teach, um, how to teach singing easier and simpler. Um, yeah. 
And so sometime right around like the year 1800, um, this, this style of shake note notation uh, gets developed. Um, and uh, basically what it does is it assigns a different shape of note head to different uh, solfege syllables. Gotcha. And um, at the time in New England, uh, people were singing a solfege that was not do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, but it was fa, sol, la, fa, sol, la, mi, fa. Mm. Um, and my understanding of that is that that, that was like uh, a particular solfege that was used in like Elizabethan England and for some reason came over and kind of got preserved uh, in New England in the US uh, where it didn't in England. And so like, Weird. anyway, so it, that's kind of like a funny uh, idiosyncrasy of this music is that the solfege is fa, sol, la, fa, sol, la, mi, fa. Yeah. Um, so you got these repeating fourths, which is kind of interesting. Uh, which is a super interesting relationship too. Cause it's, yeah, you could get all kinds of cool 20th century techniques out of that. And you know, you, yeah, that's really cool. And yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Anyway, keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, so basically, yeah, the, the, the notation invention was, was like uh, triangle note heads, circle note heads, which look like the note heads we think of normally. Uh, and square note heads, and then diamond note heads. So there were these four different shapes, and um, uh, you would use a different shape for each of the different solfege syllables. So it, it would depend on the key of the song, right? Gotcha. Uh, as opposed to like um, absolute pitch, right? So a C wouldn't always have the same shape for it. It would depend on what key it was in. Um, gotcha. So basically people, it, it helps people learn how to read music because they could, even if they couldn't really read the staff and know what note was which they could get used to associating the shape of the note head yeah. with the sound in the scale that they were singing right right you know? and they could read up and down they could at least see you know is it going up is it going down and, yeah. and so um so yeah it was it was sort of you know it's it's sort of like a um sort of i don't know there, there's there's a very nice sort of narrativization you can do with that around like uh you know, religious revivals going on at the time and this sort of like democratization of like, uh, of right. like religion and music. Uh, yeah. Um, and basically it, it, it was actually like, it was, it really caught on like around the early 1800s, it was really catching on. There were these singing school teachers all around New England, but they started traveling into the South as well and, and further um, West. Uh, and, um, shape note singing was everywhere in the US, in the colonies. Uh, and um, basically there, there were a couple of people who formed this group called the Better Music Movement who hated shape note singing. They hated, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a classist thing. They thought of it as sort of uncouth and sure. they, they felt like we should have better music in the churches. Uh, yeah. And to them, what better music meant was more European style music sure. because this music was all being written by, by um, uh um you know uh settlers uh, but but actually like european settlers who were actually like on in the american colonies um right. so that's kind of something that's interesting about it is that it is one of the sort of like earliest um uh at least euro-american uh music traditions yeah um, yeah that's fascinating and, too and you think about well to me when you when you i mean this might be a tangent but to me it's really fascinating because you talk about these music classes that are brute music classes to me yeah. that I don't know. I haven't done the research and study like every kind of step of the way in history, but to me, that seems like a lot of where our public 
school music education tradition seems like just that where it's like we you know we have this broad group of students we're not we're just trying to teach them all the best we can there's not as much time for one-on-one and yeah 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 <laughs> do what you can right and and you kind of find a way and I think that I can see how that perspective and that approach definitely translates from then all the way till now yeah and think about the cathedral schools right from England or whatever or some of these big European cities and their music schools were much more conservatory style in nature oh. and much more for reserved for kind of the upper class. And that's why you have this big, like in England, all the pro choirs are like the best choirs in the world, but they don't have as many like amateur, like middle of the road type choirs where there's one in every oh. city here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kinds of amateur musicians who are, who are, moderately trained and it and maybe it stems from this kind of idea i don't know it just seems like a really stark difference to me that's really fascinating super fascinating yeah 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 that's that's a totally interesting idea i i I don't know much about it um but uh it would definitely be i think interesting to explore uh the the connections there between those different kinds of cultures yeah sorry but yeah yeah, yeah, no no i yeah i I love speculating about that kind of stuff um yeah keep going though Um, talk a little bit about maybe some of their melodic influence and some of maybe their harmonic structures and and how those things play into the shape note stuff yeah so i mean one of the things that's really distinctive about the music is is um it it is i mean it's considered like a folk hymn tradition and so uh um uh a lot a lot of the tunes are actually the melody is based off of um uh traditional folk songs that that people knew. Sure. um so uh not all of them but but a lot of them are the melody comes from a folk song and then and then it's harmonized in different parts um gotcha. and uh yeah, um, melodically, I would say that the music tends to favor pentatonic and heptatonic scales, um, so right. five note and six note scales. Um, you'll sometimes get stuff that uses seven notes, um, uh, but but typically, um, yeah, typically they like the five and six note scales, at least for a single line. Now, something that's interesting that I haven't really explored a lot of, um, like. I, I don't really understand what exactly the, is going on theoretically here for them, but um, for whatever reason, uh, it seems like a lot of the time, like uh, one of the voices might use five notes uh, and another, or, or like six notes, right? And another voice might use a different six note or, or like, uh, you know, they're mostly the same ones, but like, uh, like they share five notes, but the sixth note that the tenor uses is a different sixth note that the bass uses so so you might get like a a seven note scale as a as a whole uh but it's like certain voices uh are the only one that ever sings that note or something yeah that's kind of that's kind of a funny thing yeah that's i think that's super interesting that's cool and how many voices typically would it is it is when you look through the shape note book or the shape note books or whatever how many voices are typical yeah, so that's also kind of an interesting issue. Uh, most most of the books that were published in the 1800s, because uh, there's a ton of them. Sacred Harp is the most is the most famous and kind of like enduring uh, of the of the hymn books that were done in shape note style. But um, there's dozens of wow. them that were published in the 1800s, and uh, 
Um, most of them uh, use only three voices. And so what, what they have is a treble, a tenor, and a bass um, is what they call it. And the, the melody is almost always in the tenor. So it's in the middle line. Um, and so then the treble is a higher harmonization, the bass is a lower harmonization. Um, and then the, uh, the treble and the tenor lines also will both be sung in octaves. So um, high voices and low voices will both sing both of those lines in octaves with each other. Gotcha. Uh, so, and with the bass line, that's not really, uh, um, it's not as common of a practice, but there's some, there's some scholarship or there's some records from the early 1900s that I've seen that, that do make reference to the bass also being sung an octave up um, by higher voices. Uh, but it's sort of like, a, uh, for whatever reason, it's not done as much. And some people say that, no, that never happened. And that, so it's kind of like a, a weird debate of whether <laughs> to double the bass or not. <laughs> um, but in the early 1900s, there were some major revisions done to the books. Uh, which added alto lines to all of them, so oh. or or almost all of them. So so actually now, if you look at a Sacred Heart book, uh, if you look at any of the editions published after like 1904 or something like that, um, uh, they're in four parts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So these these alto lines mostly were all added like way after by different composers. Yeah. Uh, weird which is really, really funny. Um, like yeah. authorship is weird in this stuff, which is also another, that's another tie into early music. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, think about, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm thinking about too, when you just said that it's, it's almost like, you know, I've been studying recently a good amount of Jesualdo and uh, look at like Jesualdo and uh, oh, yeah. Stravinsky, Stravinsky kind of, you know, you, you found these Jesualdo part books and it's missing two of the voices, three of the voices and out of six and Stravinsky goes and rewrites the other three. And, you know, you, you, it, it's, it's really interesting to see you're like, huh? Oh, interesting. Uh, it, it's really cool to, to see when, when like these later composers get some of this stuff and kind of go back to that. And it's fascinating missing the tenor part and just make it up yeah <laughs> you know like you, you obviously <laughs> you, you try to duplicate style but but i'd be really interesting it, it would be interesting yeah, yeah. to take maybe one of those 1904 and later ones and see if you could find an earlier one and just compare what it sounds like with and without the alto and yeah 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 i mean you can do that easily uh well and you can even i mean you can even take the later books uh, and you well, can just, just like sing them without. without the alto and then sing them with the alto, right? Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Dang, I, yeah. And I yeah, wonder. Yeah. And, and actually, like, when. Uh... Oh, sorry. I'm, I I lost you for a sec. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I think my internet's anyway, but I just would can you know, hear me? do with the texture and do all kinds of stuff. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, and actually, like when I'm uh, when I compose in in shape note style, uh, a lot of the time, what I'll try to do is I'll try to write it as the three part first, so mm -hmm. just bass, tenor, and treble, uh, and then I'll I usually try to wait at least a day, if not more, and then like come back to it later and add an alto. Yeah, you know, uh, just to kind of like I, I'm kind of interested in like getting in the spirit of it in that way where it's like it works it works as a three part. Uh, and you can also add the, like the alto as well. Um, yeah. But yeah. it's interesting how that changes the music, right? Like a three a three yeah. voice kind of harmony versus a four voice kind of harmony. Um, 
and it just does harmonic logic changes yeah and the whole even even regardless of you know theoretical uh analysis just the harmonic series and and how the that changes with with how the different things ring together and oh yeah profound even when you and and to to bring it back to you, I think about some of these Dufay little like Ave Maristella. You have this three voice mm. texture. He didn't add a fourth voice, but then you think of Joscan adding the fourth voice and it's uh. way different, right? It's way different that fourth voice versus just the three and, and what that does to the sound. That's yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. One other thing I should say, I, I would, I would, uh, be remiss if I didn't mention this talk, like trying to describe what shape note music sounds like. But uh, other than what I was saying earlier, which is that stylistically it's sung really bright, really nasally, really loud. Um, uh, Harmonically, um, uh, there's a lot of fourths and fifths uh, uh, and a lot of octaves, Um, not just because of the octave doubling, but even in the way it's written a lot of times between different parts. So there's, you know, I mean, anybody who's taken a music theory course, in, in college or high school in the U.S. is going to know that like one of the, you know uh, one of the things you absolutely can never do is like <laughs> parallel fifths, parallel fourths, and parallel octaves. Right. Shape note music does it constantly. It's not even it's not even like they allow it. It's like it's actually a characteristic part of the sound. Yeah. Um, not to mention like harmonies like minor seventh uh, and seconds. You know, just like these like stacked quartal and quintal chords. Um, uh yeah this is some of the stuff that to me is so amazing about the musical tradition is this it's like there's this counterpoint and and this like you know it's this part music for vocalists that is just it's sort of related to like western european choral music that that comes before it or alongside it but it's also like very clearly not related right right yeah and and i think that i and this is a question. Do you feel like there's that maybe, I don't know. What do you think is the relationship then between as, as a composer, who's writing it when you're writing it, do you think it's, how am I trying to say this question? What is the ratio you'd say between like being melodically conceived versus harmonically conceived? Yeah. 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 That's a good question. Uh, Um, yeah, so so one of the interesting things about uh, about this this tradition also is that is that um, with all these different um, tune books that were published by different people in the 1800s, uh, a few of them would like write, uh, pretty much all of them at the beginning of the book would have these like pages of like teaching you the fundamentals of music and like how to read the shapes and, 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 you know, but all, but also other stuff, other kind of like basic music theory stuff. And some of it, it looks sort of like it makes sense to, to like somebody who's uh, in the 21st century has like gone through music, a standard music theory education. And some of it looks like, I don't know, what are they talking about? Like, um, (laughs) but a couple of them also as part of that would include like a little page about like, here's how to compose music. Like here's, here's a little explanation about the art of composing. Uh, And, and, mostly what they say is um here's how you compose this music you start by writing the tenor melody right and you write your tenor melody after that uh you should write your bass line um and you should just like uh write it uh thinking about it as a line right yeah and then just make sure that it doesn't have any uh 
like just make sure it doesn't have any like seconds or sevenths uh, with the tenor line uh, and then write your treble. So basically the idea is just like write each line one at a time and don't think too much about like what are what are the harmonies that are being created. And, yeah. and the thing that's funny is that the, a lot of times the one thing they do say to pay attention to is like uh, is to avoid seconds and sevenths which of course like are just all throughout this music. Like, I don't know why they say that uh, because they don't, it's not just that they, it's not just that they like make a mistake and don't notice. It's like, this is part of, like, it's so common in the music and it's just completely at odds with the way they say to write it. That's um, <laughs> yeah, it's a very strange, very funny thing. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it basically is like, I, I, I will say that, I, um, that certainly like there, there's definitely some thinking about about beginnings and endings and like cadences sure. uh, it's not quite the same as like the way Bach was thinking about cadences but it's not totally off from that either there is some consideration giving given to like what are the resultant aggregate harmonies at certain important moments yeah um even if it's not even if they didn't actually say to pay attention to those things it's clear that they are paying attention to those things the people who are yeah. writing it um, yeah. But otherwise, the, the focus, yeah, it's uh, it's totally just on like individual lines, and a lot of the harmony that happens is just sort of like uh, the the sort of chaotic results of these different yeah. lines. Which thinking seems, about them as individual lines to me, it's like completely medieval. Yeah, like, yeah, right. Instead of music, music stylistically speaking, super yeah, medieval. totally and early renaissance in its conception to me because yeah absolutely it's got to be singable and and i and i think i think yeah there, there's so many there's so many cool ways to incorporate this style of singing in like a, a modern choral program i mean yeah. you, in high school i think like a, like an arrangement or whatever and i think that's fantastic and i i think it's totally doable even by you know, more amateur singers thinking about like junior high level kids, like, because oh, I definitely yeah. for fourth for four years. And I was like, why did I, I should have done this? You know, because eighth and ninth graders totally can do three parts and oh, definitely really way to do it and, and to make it more accessible and to bring it to life and yeah, understand modern. I just think there's a lot of cool applications for shaping yeah. as an early music practice. Yeah, I think so too. And well, and there's, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about it right now is that there's huge, um, there's a huge revival movement going on uh, around it. And it's mostly amateur singers, you know, it's, uh, it mostly exists outside of the academy and outside of like, choral contexts. Uh, and so there's like, I mean, all over, uh, you could find, I mean, just about any city in this country, you could find a group of people that meets like once once every two weeks or maybe once a week if there's enough people you know yeah. uh and they just get together for about two hours and just like sing shape note music uh you know and some of them are great singers and some of them are not and uh people just get together and they sing it. it's it's music i mean it's it's a music that always was intended for amateurs right. uh and then and then like right now there's a big revival movement going on that is also centered around amateurs uh yeah and so yeah i mean it's uh, I guess my point with that is, is, is just to reinforce what you're saying, which is that like, yeah, you can sing this music with anybody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think it, it helps unlock maybe some, to me, it would un unlock, you, you can find connections to the music of today, even in those kinds of things. Right. So 
you broaden the horizon of what early music is and you broaden your understanding of what contemporary music is and, and yeah and and i think that you know amateurs or professionals like i mean i'm sitting here just like okay i'm like go look those up i'm gonna go you know like constantly kind of find a ways to study it to to broaden that but i think that's super fascinating so yeah yeah that's great man dude i am blown i am just blown away i'm like ready to go I'm like thinking of programs for Sound of Ages right now. Like, hey, how can we do an American early music and do shape note singing and like doing all this stuff for our pro choir? Because I think it's, yeah, it could be a really cool thing. And no, that would be amazing. I mean, well, and, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I definitely do think of it as, uh, to me, it makes sense as, as, as a type of early music, right? Like it's, um, well, I mean, uh, typically when we talk about early music, you know, uh, typically we were talking about a very narrow geographical region uh, and, and a very specific kind of temporal region, right? Like like uh, like this time period and this place. Uh, yeah. You know, we're not really thinking about like what kind of music was going on in China uh, in the 1200s, right? Like when we're talking about early music, uh, people are not usually meaning that. Um, right. But they're also like not even meaning stuff that was going on in Italy in different spheres yeah that were not the church right uh typically we don't mean that when we say early music either um uh but anyway i guess yeah that's sort of a a little bit of a ramble but the point but the point being that i I think that like uh you sort of share this idea i mean you've talked a little bit about the idea of like an expanded conception of early music and um yeah i think i think that to me um shape note what it what what it shares in common with other kinds of um, things that we think of as early music is uh, that it um, it arises in a sort of um, I don't know if maybe amateur is the right way to say this it, like it's the people who are who are initially writing the music are um, uh, are, are are not people who have the same kind of history that I have, which is that like, I went to school and learned uh, rules about how to compose and how not to compose. Um, It's, it's, uh, you know, this music is emerging um, initially as just a thing that people are making and and it's emerging, you know, likely kind of out of a folk practice of some kind. Um, uh, And it's, and it, and it doesn't tend to be defined by too many rules of things you shouldn't do. Right. Right. Uh, Yeah. so there's a lot of exploration going on. There's a lot, and there's there's very, there are very few like specific musical institutions that are saying like this is this is what music is and this is what music isn't. Right. Uh, and so there's experimentation going on basically. Basically, what we get to at the end of all this is like it's an experimental practice, right? Which is which is what Michaud was. Uh, and 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 this is you know this is where we get these this is where we get these connections between like uh, contemporary. Exp- Experimental composers who have an interest in early music. Uh, I, I think that the that connection makes a lot of sense to me uh, as like a person who is interested in music that is experimental, that is playful, that is exploratory um, uh, in, in any kind of time period or any time of type of geographical region. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. No, that's a perfect. That's a perfect wrap up ending. So this is awesome. And I, I would love to, um, 
I'd love to interview you again. I don't know, six months or something, or, you know, if you got a project coming up or if you have, if you have like compositions that you're doing that are particularly inspired by a specific early music practice or something, you're like, Hey, like, I'd love to come back on and, oh yeah, you know, yeah. I'd love to interview you again at some point, but I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm sure you've got. Yeah. Oh, totally. No, thanks for reaching out. This was really fun. I, I and, and just like great to hear from you too. Um, yeah. 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 Okay, so there you have it. Shape note singing as early music. I love it. I remember the first, my first introduction to shape note singing was at BYU. I was singing in BYU Singers. We went on tour to Arizona, and Dr. Andrew Crane had made an addition of some shape note melody for three-part bass tenor voices, and we sang it, and he kind of taught us the concept of singing it really forward and in your face and where are the Hebrew children and it was amazing it was so fun I loved singing that it was really simple it didn't take a lot of rehearsal time to execute well it wasn't quote-unquote refined but there's something really primal and human about hearing that music that connects us to history. Ah, it was very cool. So now, even though we've been talking, we've been talking about shape note singing, the composer profile is on William Billings, who had works in shape note singing books and tunes that were published in these books. But his compositions don't necessarily fall under the shape note category or genre. His compositions would just be considered early American uh, sacred music. So when I picture William Billings, I picture Mad-Eye Moody from Harry Potter because there's a letter uh, from one of his contemporaries describing him. And so he was, well, first of all, he was uh, a backy chewer, which seems very American Western frontier. Um, to chew fistfuls of tobacco at one time is how he was described as chewing. He His legs were different lengths, so I'm sure he walked with a limp. He was blind in one eye, so maybe he had a magical eye. Maybe he was an actual wizard trying to hide from the muggles. But picture Mad-Eye Moody as if he wasn't like grumpy and angry all the time. Because he was apparently, William Billings was a really good-natured, good-humored person. And he had a really, really good singing voice. And even and it was kind of really offsetting his unnatural appearance. So he was extremely talented. He wasn't formally educated in music. At least nothing is has been documented. And he was, he had to, his father died when he was young, so he had to pick up tanning, you know, tanning leather hides and stuff as a profession. And then eventually he started to write music and think about this. So he comes up, he's not trained in music at all. He's self-taught and throughout his career, career, 
he wrote literally six books, collections of his compositions. So here they are. The New England Psalm Singer, The Singing Master's Assistant, Music in Miniature, The Psalm Singer's Amusement, The Suffolk Harmony, and The Continental Harmony. Wow. So, and and there's more. Those aren't even all of his works. So he just like pumped out music. He became a teacher at singing school and singing master. He just became this icon of Western, not of Western, but of American sacred music. Secular music wasn't really that interesting to a lot of these Puritans. The early music of America is really fascinating. I've only touched the surface on some of it, but you have so many different things happening all at once. You have like fiddle music and secular dance music, and then you have African-American music that's kind of thrown into the mix, and then you have these Europeans who are trained classical musicians coming from the traditions of Mozart, starting musical societies, And so you just have all of this smorgasbord of musical things happening all at once. It just seems like chaos, which is kind of how the American Revolution (laughs) seems in general. It's just chaos is happening. Um, And out of chaos came something amazing and beautiful and magical. So, hence Mad-Eye Moody. Not funny. Okay. Anyhow, is it? I think that there are three. Well, I listened to so much William Billings in preparation for this episode, and uh, once again, didn't even really scratch the surface. So you could spend hours and hours and hours just listening and researching. But one of my favorite uh, recordings that I found of Billings' music is ironically enough by a British choir, (laughs) which is who sings American music the best? Huh, the Brits. (laughs) Anyway, but it's by His Majesty's Clerks, conducted by Paul Hillier. And the album is called Early American Choral Music. Has some amazing, amazing things on here. So as as you listen and as you follow along with the score, like just from CPDL, I'm not doing anything really fancy, but I think that you can start – You, I hear European, especially British, Renaissance church music really clearly in this music, but it's just simpler, not as complex, not as polyphonic, maybe not as – what we would consider expressive, a little bit more plain. But there, in that, there is its own beauty because almost every cadence ends with an open fifth. So it's really, really going backwards in time compared to what everything else was, whatever, what was going on everywhere else. So the first one, um, I also wouldn't necessarily classify these as, you know, beginning, intermediate, and advanced they're all roughly, they're all doable by amateur singers that can be considered then easy pieces of music. And that's the great thing, like Stuart said, 
it's kind of born from this amateur tradition versus this really highly trained professional tradition. So the first one that I really liked was to the, the tune name was Shiloh. And the, the text is methinks I saw, I, whoa, methinks I see an heavenly host. And it's a Christmas text. Really great verse, chorus, strophic structure. So really repetitive and easy learn because of that. The textures change up for each verse and chorus. So verse one goes and then the, the, in the middle or like between verses you hear you know the altos and the tenors do a duet and then the basses and sopranos come in later and you have that kind of duetting going back and forth all the time and again it's purely homophonic major sonority the ranges are not huge like the soprano range is within a fifth i think i'm i'm just double checking that yeah, it's it's a fifth wide. So and 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 the basses is an octave and so the the ranges are small, which is would make sense for amateur singers. The next piece that I found really cool was David's Lamentation. So if you've heard Eric Whitaker's When David Heard, if you've heard Thomas Tompkins setting of When David Heard, you can add this to the list and make a really cool exciting program of British Renaissance and then American Frontier and then Contemporary American Composer, all setting the same text. Very cool. Same kind of idea where homophonic and then the the basses have a solo and then these homophonic, really dramatic, oh my son, a measure of rest. And you can really expand that measure of rest with a fermata. And it's really simple harmonies, you know, one, five, one, what we would consider tonal harmony, Um, while also thinking kind of of each line being its own individual line. And the last one, the one that I found really, really cool, I mean, the other two are really cool also, but my favorite, eh, I don't know, ish, is Samuel the Priest Gave Up the Ghost. It's a funeral anthem. And again, very similar in form and structure as the other two pieces. Lots of, you know, each part has a solo line that's really cool and expressive, um, but also very simple and singable. These pieces would be so cool in the middle of a program. You think of all the complex modern harmonies. You think of the complex polyphonic structure of you know, the high Renaissance or Baroque ornamentation or, and then all of a sudden you step back into something almost medieval, almost Renaissance, almost classical, and you can't quite place it. And you sing it in that really bright forward place. If the audience is dozing, they will wake up. And I just think if, if you, if we place you know, this early American choral music in the same genre as Western European medieval Renaissance and Baroque music, the possibilities for our programs actually opens up a ton to a wide variety of colors, especially if we don't think of any of these genres or 
you know, time periods and locations as obligatory. Okay, thanks for joining us for Early Music Monday. Expanding the Scope. I'm sure we'll have more episodes of Expanding the Scope, talking about other different genres that I would include in early music because of the nature of the building blocks that it uses. Had a cool interview with Stuart Wheeler and talked about William Billings. William Billings, Mad-Eye Moody. Give us a five-star rating. Those are really helpful. Write us a review, also really helpful. It can even be negative. Like, it doesn't have to be nice. Just some kind of a review, but then with five stars. Like, five stars and, hey, Cameron's really boring. Totally doesn't matter. The review helps. Okay, we'll see you next time on Early Music Monday.